my pleasure to have you with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. But also, I want to make sure that you're safe so that the money you save, you can actually use someday. Coming up later, I want to tell you something shocking. Where's the safest place for you to be in a vehicle? It's really not where you think. So I want to talk about something that seems to be getting to be more and more and more of a problem. Our consumer behavior as a buyer is so influenced by reviews that now there are people who all they do full-time is they earn their living by writing fake reviews. And a lot of companies that are trying to get a product sold in the marketplace or get you to eat at a restaurant or get you to stay at a particular place, they're contracting with these organizations that write fake reviews. And there was a new study by Which, which is a consumer organization that has its greatest influence in England, but does all kinds of research that found that reviews on Amazon are overwhelmingly fake, which is something that's come up before in other studies. Amazon is furious about the new report about fakes, not about the problem of the fakes, but that there's more publicity being brought to the table about the fakes. The problem is, is that we are so influenced by these phony reviews, and very seldom do we go past seeing on Amazon or any other site that something earned four and a half stars, or depending on the system they're using, four circles or five circles, or whatever the rating system is, it's always generally something to five, and so they're just stacked with these phony reviews to make something look more appealing or make you happier with an item. So there are a couple of ways to get around this and to fight back. One of them is a website that has become more popular called fakespot.com, where you're able to determine whether reviews are fake or not. They're using algorithms where they're able to ferret out fake reviews. They're not always successful at it, but it sure is a help. And what I do is I read them. I was buying a phone case recently, and I was looking on eBay and Amazon for a phone case. And on Amazon, I kept reading reviews of these phone cases, and I just smelled a rat. I just kept having this sense that the reviews were bogus. So what I did, this is so negative, I went and read the poor reviews, you know, where you can select what level of reviews you want to read. And it was really clear that some of the cases that were getting very high ratings were really crummy and weren't going to protect my phone. So you and I have to understand that whether you're looking at a place to eat, a place to sleep, a place to shop, an item to shop for, that the odds are very strong, if not overwhelming, that the reviews that are being posted are bogus, and you and I, unfortunately, have to be the cop on the beat. Again, that website that may help you spot the fakes, fakespot.com. Roger is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Roger. Hello. 
Thank you for taking my call, Mark. Certainly, Roger. You're thinking of becoming someone who sells insurance and investments. Is that right? Yes, sir. Uh, some people have been talking to me about an opportunity. They do uh, different types of insurance, some mutual funds and stuff like that towards retirement and some help with debt and stuff like that. And I was just trying to find out if you think this type of opportunity would be good and something decent to try. Yes. So you would be selling a product that it's not the cheapest product for if you start doing this for your customers to buy from you. But there are a lot of people who are never going to get around to buying investments or making sure they have life insurance unless somebody like you comes along and beats them over the head to do it. Yes, sir. So there's a need in the marketplace, and it needs to be something that you'd really enjoy and that you would be there to, to serve the people who would become your clients, not just in selling them something, but that you'd really be following up and following through with them to make sure they're staying on their targets and trying to reach the goals that you've helped them figure out they need. You know, it's not about selling somebody mutual funds or insurance. It's about the bigger thing, which is what's somebody trying to accomplish? What goals do they have? And how you can help meet that with the line of products you'd be selling. Okay. okay. And would you be doing this full-time or part-time? starting out part-time and hopefully turning it into a full-time career. Okay. All right. And and you'll know as you take the courses if it's something that you really enjoy or not because you have to enjoy both the detail part of, of this and also the people part of it. One without the other, either of the two without the other, it's not going to be a good choice for you. Thank you very much. Sure. And it's not a ripoff. It's not a scam. It's just more expensive for people to buy what you'd be selling than for them to go buy on their own. Chris is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Chris. Hi. How are you, Clark? Thanks for taking my call. Certainly, Chris. You have a classic dilemma that you want to run by me, and you're going to put my brain to the test if I'm going to have a good answer for you. Go ahead. Right, right. Well, my wife and I are looking to become homeowners and new to the process, uh, but we still have quite a bit of debt. And our realtor suggests that our debt doesn't really hurt us at this time, and we should focus our earnings on putting that into savings for a down. I'm wondering if that's advisable. Let's hear about the debts. Like, what kind of debt levels do you have? What makes up those debts? Well, we have two vehicles that we're, we're still paying on, uh, a handful of credit cards, but the lion's share is my student loan, uh, which seems to be lingering, lingering around. <laughs> and, you know, I talked about recently how people who have a significant amount of student loans on average are delaying first home purchase by seven years because of the burden of the student loans. So let's go through your debts and see what your overall picture supports. So how much in student loan debt do you have? We still owe thirty-three grand on it. Okay. And what kind of interest rate does that carry? Do you know? Yeah. The loan is split up into five parts. Four of them are uh, Stafford loans at 6.8%, and then about twenty grand of it is a signature select loan that sits at 1075 
Okay. And the credit card debt, how much is that? I think it's 17 to 18 grand in that. Okay. So you've got, wow, you got 50 grand between credit cards and student loans. The cars pay themselves off over time. You can keep driving a car well after you paid it off. But having the 33000 in student loan debt with nearly two-thirds of it at almost 11%, I respectfully disagree with the real estate agent. And you need to set as a higher priority paying on the student loan debt. Got it. And if there are some lifestyle trims that you and your wife need to make because the goal of home ownership is important, then you start making changes and boosting how much you're paying towards the student loan debt. What's your combined income? We together annually go over 130 a year. All right, at 130 a year, you should be able to pay off that student loan debt in probably 24 months. 24 months, okay. Because you have enough income to support that. And so you should figure out what you'd have to pay per month to wipe out the student loans in two years. And you would be in a position then to be much healthier because you would have gotten used to living on substantially less than what you make. You would have been paying nearly two grand a month on the student loans when you th- calculate in the interest potentially. Okay. But you would, no, it wouldn't be that much. But you would be in a position where you'd already be budgeting yourself in a way that as soon as you've extinguished student loans, you can start throwing that same amount of money every month towards saving for a down payment. Right. But I think it would be unhealthy for the two of you financially carrying $50,000 between credit card and student loan debt and then taking on top of it the obligation of a home. Right, right. So I think that the home has to, has to be a goal that you're looking for a little further down the road, but make it a serious goal so that you can call me two years from now and say, you know, I did it. I'd like you to be credit card debt-free by that time. That's how I came up with the $2,000 a month. Get rid of the credit card debt and the student loans, and then your entire financial picture as a couple is completely healthy and ready to proceed towards the process of buying a home. Ray is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Ray. Hello, Clark. Thank you for taking my call. Absolutely, Ray. So, Ray, you got a call that distressed you. Tell me about that if you could. Yes. Call about the Windows license expiring. Yeah. And they wanted me to uh, renew. And I called the number that they gave me, and it was, of course, a foreign person on there. And uh, it's hard to understand. So, uh, you know, I I didn't didn't think that I would have to renew a Windows license. I thought they came with a computer, and that was until the computer died. I asked him, uh, you know, which windows was expiring, because I have XP, 8.1, and, and 7. And uh, he couldn't give me an answer to that, and just said, go to your computer. So uh, at that point, I said, no, I wasn't interested. I think it's a scam, but uh, I'm just not sure. Yeah, it well, is a scam. It is a scam, and uh-huh. there have been various versions of these scam phone calls where they pretend to be Microsoft, both as voicemails, uh-huh and as a solicitation call where somebody pretends to be for Microsoft tech support. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, I love this from one of the stories I talked about 
And I love the headline. No, Microsoft is not, all in caps, calling you about your expired Windows license. <laughs> and they will never call you. And right. this is a hideous scam because it has a few different layers. The most common one is when someone gets taken. Ray, what they do is they get you to give them information from your computer and then they remotely can take control of your computer steal all the information that's stored on it, Mm -hmm. steal your passwords, and if they wish, then ransom it back to you by locking it down. Oh, boy, yeah. So you did the right thing by not giving any such information, Mm -hmm. and that was just a nasty, ugly con. Okay, but uh, thanks for letting me know that. And one other thing, uh, Clark, I use Firefox and DuckDuckGo, and every so often I get this big garnish screen pops up and says, Firefox has a, an update, and to do, download the update right then, and um, it has a file there, and it's a .js Juliet Sierra file extension. That looks kind of fishy to me. Yeah, I'm not familiar with them ever sending anything like that from mm-hmm. Firefox. I've never experienced that before, mm-hmm. so I don't know if that is some kind of uh, attempt to place a virus on your computer. And... Firefox is pretty chill about notifying you about when you need to do an update. So something that takes over your whole screen, I would be suspicious of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I closed it down. uh, That was the right choice. Okay, Clark. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'm so glad the Microsoft crooks didn't get you. Yeah. You and me, too. Right. And by the way, when I say Microsoft crooks, it's not Microsoft being a crook. It's the people pretending to be Microsoft that are the crooks. It's time for Ask Clark. That's where you post a question for me at Clark.com. Producer Joel asks it for you. Who's up, Joel? Clark Tracy's up says, I have been seeing advertisements for this website, privacy.com. It's a third-party site that allows you to pay for online purchases with a virtual burner card. Is it smart to use a service like this? So the idea of a burner card is if you don't use credit cards and you want to make sure that your account doesn't get emptied by a crook, you have a one-time use number. And with that one-time use number, even if somebody wanted to misuse it, it doesn't do them any good because it's already been used the one time. I should point out that the reviews of it are very positive. People really have liked it. But if you like the idea of a disposable number, many banks, not most, but many do offer the ability for you to have a one-time use number when you're doing online shopping that can be used with a credit or debit card. But if you just want something simple, this seems to do just what they promote. All right, William says, Clark, after I freeze my credit with the three major credit bureaus, what will be visible to someone who runs a credit check on me? They can't run a credit check on you. That's the whole idea of credit freeze. If you're already an existing customer of someone, it's a permissible use, even with a credit freeze, for them to check your credit. So any credit cards you already have, anybody you've already borrowed money from, anything like that, If your relationship with them was established before you set up credit freeze, they can still check your credit at will. On the other hand, if you want to open a new line of credit, get a new cell phone, want to establish service with a utility company, 
get a satellite, pay TV, whatever, you're going to have to thaw your credit temporarily for them to be able to check your credit so you can proceed with whatever service or product you want to do. All right, and David says, how do I figure out the limitations on contributing to a Roth based upon my income? Well, it depends if you're single or married. Generally, if you're married, you're able to do a Roth up to income of 186000 a year. If you're single, it's 118000 a year. So most people make below those limits if you make above them. Saving for retirement gets a little more difficult, but I'd say that's probably a good problem to have. I'm so glad you're here with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our main website, Clark.com, and when you're looking for deals, check out ClarkDeals.com. Okay, so all through the years, we've been told that sitting in the back of a vehicle is much safer than sitting in the front. And logic would support that because if you know anything about physics and momentum, if you're in the front of a vehicle and you're in some kind of collision, the greatest force of impact is in the front. But the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety says, think again. And I think this was a surprise to them, but now it has become safer to sit in the front than to sit in the back of a vehicle because automakers have put so many resources into protecting the front seat driver and passenger and done so little for people behind the front seat. The exception to this generally has been only with minivans, where, which is a very small part of the vehicle market today, where special effort has been put in to make the, particularly the middle row, very safe on minivans. But as a general rule, you are more a sitting duck. Let's say you ride in Ubers or Lyfts. Normally, you might get in the back. But based on this information from the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, you're actually going to be safer sitting in the front. Our son is 13, and we had him sit in the back for so long because that was what was supposed to be safest for a child and continues to be till a child gets to a certain bulk and size and height. But now he's at that size, and he should be sitting in the front because of what the insurance institute has found out so the insurance institute for highway safety is trying to use their bully puppet pulpit of publicity to try to get automakers to put some time and attention and effort on making the back of a vehicle as safe as the front which is so ironic when you think about it because i bet if you asked a hundred people 99 of the 100 would say that the back is safer than the front, but not right now, and I think you should know. Justin joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Justin. Hi, Clark. Thanks for taking my call. Certainly. You're thinking of moving to smaller quarters, huh? Right. 
Well, how can I be of help with that? So we're in a great place. We have a house that's actually too big for us. And previous to this one, we've owned our other house with a smaller mortgage, a 15-year mortgage. And we're thinking about selling the larger, too big for us house and moving back into our rental, in which case we would have some equity. And we really want to know, should we pay down all or some of the mortgage with our equity or invest this money? What a great question. The market you're in, is it strong that you're going to be able to move your bigger house at a pretty good price? Yes. Great. We'll, uh, we'll see a great appreciation since Wonderful. We it four years ago. Wonderful. In four years, you'll see a huge appreciation? Yes, sir. Wow. That is great, Justin. All right. So the question has several different layers about where it goes. On the rental home that you would move back into, what mortgage interest rate does it carry? It's really low. It's a 15-year, 2.5%. You do not pay that off. Okay. There's too much flexibility of other things you can do with the money that would be more advantageous. Do you still work? Yes. We both have jobs. If we did this, the hope is that my wife might be able to leave a position that she isn't as happy with and do more community work that'll pay less but give her more satisfaction good for her and with the excess money you you'll have from the sale of the property it means that you'll be able to max out roth iras every year moving forward yes we've been doing that for the last 10 years we've been following your advice what are you going to do with all your money you got it together huh That's what we're trying to figure out. All right. So in your case, do you work at an employer that has a 401k or something like it? I do. I contribute the max into the 401k. My wife changes position. She doesn't have a 401k, but maybe I was even considering switching because I can put it into a Roth 401k and... That's a great idea, because if she goes into a lower-paying profession, your tax bracket will go down, Mm -hmm. and then it would be neat, because if you do the same maximum, and when you turn 50, you'll be able to contribute more than that. You do the Roth, effectively, you're raising the amount you're contributing by 30%, Mm -hmm. because it's after-tax money instead of before. Right, so that's... That's kind of our plan A. All right. So if you if you have any debts besides the a two and a half percent mortgage, no, we would. It, once we sell the big house, we wouldn't have any other debt. There's no card, no credit card. We've been diligent, following your advice. All right. So as alternative strategies, you could actually invest money in other ways. You could have. You've been a landlord. If you like being a landlord. You could maybe consider buying another rental property. Mm-hmm. And um, we've heard that you, yeah, how much you love being a landlord. I do. And, and, and I don't know, how, how's the experience been for you being a landlord for these last few years? It hasn't been bad. Uh, we've had great tenants. Have only, well, in four years, moved to uh, three different parties. However, we've managed it ourselves. Uh, we get a little bit of positive cash flow, maybe 300 to $400 a month. And over time, that becomes very valuable. So, I mean, there's lots of things you can do, but the one thing I would not do is take a 2.5% mortgage out 
unless psychologically it feels so great to you to be mortgage debt-free, owe no money to anybody, that would overcome what in dollars and cents terms would make sense to keep in place and use the money for other investing. Jason joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Jason. Hi, Clark. Thanks for taking my call. Certainly, Jason. How can I be of service to you? Clark, um, I took your advice recently and purchased a Chromebook to help manage my various uh, retirement accounts that I have and my, my wife and I have together. And as I was adding more and more different websites and accounts, I became, began to wonder, where do you cut that off? How, how, what accounts should I use on that? Only ones that have assets or any account that I use, for instance, my Social Security number? So what I do with mine is no credit card accounts, because I don't really care about those. I'm not liable for those. I only use accounts that have money in them. Brokerage account, retirement account, you know, IRA, 401k, bill pay, that's it. Gotcha. So the idea, you know, the Chromebooks are so cheap. How much was yours? Oh, it was around $200 for almost a brand for a brand new one that did everything I needed. That's great. And and if somebody doesn't mind buying a refurb, those are down around 100 bucks. And over Black Friday, new Chromebooks should be around the $100 figure. And so the reason I talk about Chromebooks and the reason you were attracted to it, Jason, is why? You mentioned previously the security levels, the fact that they're a little less likely to be hacked, and the value of having your investment information or your investment accounts or bank accounts only on a unique computer that's not accessing the Internet otherwise. Right, because what people face vulnerability with when they treat a computer as a Swiss Army knife and do everything on it, that if something happens through an attachment to an email or a website you go to or whatever, and a virus gets loaded on your computer, a key log or anything like that, then every one of your financial accounts becomes vulnerable. So by segregating those off on their own computer and with a Chromebook being so unlikely to ever be able to be contaminated compared to a Windows computer or a MacBook, that's why I like that idea of having that computer that only does those very linear jobs for you that protects you as much as possible. So good for you. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right, have a great day. And one other thing about the Chromebook that came in as a suggestion that I think is brilliant is that you should have a separate Gmail account that you use for your Chromebook. And so you set up that Chromebook with that separate Gmail account And then that one is completely segregated totally from the rest of your life. Brian is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Brian. How are you? Good. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. You have done the hard work of saving money for a kid's college, and now it's like, what do I do with it? Exactly. Help. Lay the scenario out for me, and let's see if I can be of help. All right. So my daughter is going to a school in state, so that'll save a little bit of money. She has a mix of funds in an IRA, a UTMA, a 529, and those three are about the same. 
similar in dollars. And then she has um, a little bit in the savings and checking, which which doesn't get much interest. And so what's her, her likelihood of qualifying at the state school for financial aid for uh, not academic, but for financial reasons? So we had to fill out the FAFSA form, but she doesn't qualify for any, uh, barely any. All right. The and reason I asked be- that is that that affects how I'd answer where you'd pull money out and when. Because if she was eligible for some amount of financial aid, having money sitting there in a, a uniform, you know, a, an UGMA or any of those kind of accounts, you said yours is a Uniform Transfer to Minors Act account, okay. having money yep. in any of those, she's expected to use that money first before she really establishes eligibility for need-based financial aid. And the IRA, not, because that's a retirement account. The money in a a savings account in her name is considered to be her asset, not yours, and it's expected to be spent for school. Assets like a 529, you're the owner of the account? Yes. Yeah, so uh, 529 is only considered as a minor, minor asset as far as being used for school. So normally what people would do if there was a possibility of need-based financial aid is they'd spend first, they'd empty the the UGMA or UTMA account, they'd empty the savings account, never touch the IRA, and then she becomes a better picture at qualifying for financial aid after her freshman year. Okay, so she goes on to school post-undergrad, that'll help as well? Exactly. Particularly because she may be at a point where she's no longer, if she works for a year or two before she goes to grad school, she may no longer be considered to be your dependent. It would be strictly based on her financial situation and her not having money in her own name improves her odds of qualifying for financial aid. But the 529 account, because of how it's considered and treated, is uh, an asset that you want to wait as long as possible to use that money. Okay. Because it does not really affect financial aid eligibility. And the other thing is that if you get another year or two of tax-free growth out of it, that's also to your advantage. Okay. So the IRA, we should never touch that, even if she, she has the possibility of, if she goes to med school or something down the road and she wants to, or she needs to take Oh, yeah, she aid. needs the money, but that would be the last pile to take money from. Okay. Because then they'll tax that at her rates and, yeah. Which would be low, um, and there right. typically would not be a penalty because it's being used for education, but... She's still taxed on it as a traditional IRA. But because she hadn't been, as a student, wouldn't be earning a lot of money, the tax rates would be very low. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time for Ask Clark. That's where you post a question for me at Clark.com, and Joel asks it for you. Yeah, Clark, Mark wrote, and he says, I'm 39, I'm about to open a Roth IRA, but someone told me that permanent life insurance is much safer. I want your advice on which one is better for me. I am glad that my life insurance premiums are up to date because my chest is starting to tighten at that. So again, do a, a life permanent life insurance policy instead of a Roth? Never, 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 not ever do you buy permanent life insurance as an alternative to a real retirement account like a Roth. The expenses that will eat up your money in a life insurance policy versus going into a Roth may be as much as 50 times the expense Roth, Roth, Roth is 100% the right choice for you. Look at my investment guide at Clark.com. Clark Lynn wants to know, should I pay an attorney to get out of a timeshare? I don't know why you'd pay a lawyer to get out of a timeshare. I guess there's a remote possibility a lawyer would find a problem with the legal documents that you signed originally. I mean, they'd have to find a problem with the original sale for a lawyer to be able to get you out of timeshare. Now, when you're in a timeshare, unless you can prove something was done that was illegal or improper, you really are stuck with something that has no marketable value. You can try to list it on vacation.com. You also, uh, one of the strategies that helps people not get rid of them, but at least get some money from it, so consider renting out your weeks. All right, and Boris wrote in, he says, what's the best way to obtain the addresses and phone numbers of old friends of mine that live in other states? There used to be a search tool on the web that uh, was very good for that called Zaba Search, and it's become pretty much a pay-to-play site now. So Facebook is by far the best way for you to reconnect with people. You're not going to get their addresses and phone numbers on a Facebook search, but you can do friend requests and ultimately reconnect with people. And it's just amazing how people are reconnecting with people from they haven't seen or talked to or heard from in decades. So it truly is that community that allows long-lost people to reconnect I wonder with all these dating sites, how many people have ended up getting married just from reconnecting on Facebook with high school sweethearts? You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.